Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, dear GabFest fans. James Comey has come between us. He's testifying and I have to cover it. I couldn't do that and be with you tonight. Whether you think the former FBI director helped or hurt your candidate in the last election, we can all agree that this is an outrage that harms our nation and that tramples cherished norms. These live shows and getting to meet you at them are one of the great thrills of this little experiment we started so long ago. So I'm sorry that I can't be with you. I'll get to feel what it's like to be at the dinner party without being able to chime in. I was tempted to live tweet the show, but I think we've all learned the lesson of restraint when it comes to Twitter. You're very lucky, though, to have Ruth in the house. So you're in good hands. Have fun and be good to each other. Now, with no more foolishness, here are Emily Bazelon, David Plotz, and Ruth Marcus. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for June 8th, 2017, the I Expect Loyalty Edition. We're See, if James Comey had just given that response to Donald Trump, I, like, yeah. just think where we'd be. We are, we are live on top of a solar-powered wall at the Robert and Judy Newman Center for the Performing Arts in Denver, Colorado, in front of a crowd of beautiful uh, Air Force Academy graduates and frackers, <laughs> cowboy poets. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine is to my far left. Hello, Emily. Hey. John Dickerson of Face the Nation is being held hostage by his bosses at CBS News for the Comey hearings. But no matter, we have one of our favorite GabFest guest hosts, Ruth Marcus of the Washington Post. <laughs> On this week's GabFest, Hollywood has the Academy Awards. Washington has the Comey hearing. We will preview the biggest congressional hearing in a generation and dig into some of the key legal issues that await uh, President Trump and Jim Comey. Then we will be joined by the very governor of Colorado himself, John Hickenlooper, to gnaw... All right, we're going to gnaw over the state of the Democratic Party and the state of Colorado as well and the prospects for next elections. Then the Supreme Court just took a huge privacy case. Can police track your location or the location of your phone without a search warrant? Emily and Ruth will offer wise counsel about that. And of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, we'll do an audience Q&A. So look around you. There is a microphone near you. And at the end of the show, we'll be able to take some questions from you. And please formulate some great ones. So this is Washington 2017. On Thursday morning, bars in my home city and Ruth's home city will open early so that crowds can gather to watch the testimony of Jim Comey before the Senate Intelligence Committee. Comey, who was recently fired as FBI director by President Trump, will testify about what the president asked him to do regarding the investigation of Michael Flynn and other potential interference Trump made in the FBI director's work. Comey scooped himself on Wednesday by releasing a statement. He, he said that, that like a contestant at a Donald Trump beauty pageant, he asked to never be left alone with the president. <laughs> For the record, he, he, did, he did not make that analogy. He did not make the analogy. They might have been confused about that. He did use the word hookers in his statement. He did say hookers. kind of crazy. He also said that Trump demanded a loyalty from him or expected loyalty from him and kept pressing on that. And he repeatedly nudged him to let go of the Michael Flynn investigation into potential Russian interference in our electoral politics. There are also reports this week that Trump buttonholed other top officials, including the director of national intelligence, Stan Coats, asking him, asking Coates to ask Comey to back off of the investigation. 
And there's so much, there is just so much crazy stuff going on. There's a new FBI director who's been nominated. There's uh, attack ads that are apparently going to be aired against Jim Comey during the hearings. There's the potential that Trump himself is going to live tweet the Comey hearings. It is, it's insane. Um, so we have two of the best legal minds in journalism here. Ruth, what are you excited to see uh, with Comey's testimony? Or are you not excited because his statement, his statement has, has scooped himself? So I actually don't, it will shock you to hear that I disagree with you. Um, because I don't think, once again. John never disagrees um, with I me. I know, I know. <laughs> it's an excellent note right. to begin on. Never mind. <laughs> I don't think he scooped himself. And I actually, and also, I'm not sure that he released his testimony. I think it was released by the Senate Intelligence Committee, which, and I've covered a lot of hearings in Washington. I've, you're supposed to, as a witness, give your, um, testimony the day before. But if you're kind of big witness, sometimes you hold off on doing that because you've got the power. And I assume the Intelligence Committee let it go because they thought it was going to leak. I think it's brilliant because it gives us, I don't think Comey scooped himself. It gives us two days of Comey headlines instead of one day of Comey headlines because now we can all, and I'm surprised you didn't choose grandfather clock by the wall door edition. Um, God, everybody's read it already. It's so impressive. Um, but, uh, but then I think we get the elaboration of it in the second day. He can talk about, for example, so you went out after this meeting in Trump Tower and you immediately went to your car and started writing this down in notes. What You've never done that before. You took care to tell us. What was it in that meeting that made you start doing that? And we can then sort of explicate each of these things. I think it's going to, I mean, Jim Coney gives great hearing. Right. I mean, we've we've been there before. We've seen that. And I just, uh, whoa. Yeah. So, Emily, was there anything you read in the Comey testimony that made you think, wow, there is a powerful uh, criminal case here against the president? I think that if you connect all the dots, not just of Comey's testimony tomorrow, but these other pieces of the puzzle, um, you know, you mentioned uh, the kind of leaning on coats to get involved. I think it's possible that someone could make a case. I don't think it's clear that we have um, indictable obstruction of justice charges here. And I also think it's the wrong question because for just for deciding what we think about this president and his relationship to the FBI, to investigations, the independence of the Justice Department, and to the rule of law, we don't have to get all the way to do we have every element of obstruction in the criminal code. All we have to get to is do we think that this is the way to run the country? And do we think we have a chief executive who understands um, and respects these kind of no. norms of, um, what do you think the answer to this question is? I'm not doing a very good job of setting up like a real question. Um, right. So it's, it's really about, uh, the political ramifications of what Trump did and then how people respond to that. I mean, one thing that really struck me, and I want to hear what you think about this is that the responses from both Trump's critics and defenders were to double down. So people who thought, who don't want to think he did anything wrong. Senator Burr, who has this key role as chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, said that he didn't see anything disturbing about this testimony. And then Democrats were up in arms. So it shouldn't be a partisan question, but of course it is. And what do we make of those responses, Ruth? So I think I have to start with Senator Burr, who really got me going, because uh, you could read the Comey testimony, and you could say, I don't think there's a criminal case, and I'll get back to that. And you could say, I don't think we're talking, we're in the impeachment zone yet. There is no way that you can understand the way the American government and the rule of law and the independence of the Justice Department and the FBI is supposed to function and come away from that without just a serious chill, running down your spine, pit in your stomach, pick your um, sickness metaphor, um, trite one. Uh, so when Senator Burr said that, I just thought that was so appalling because 
he's supposed to be, I thought there was this oversight thing going on and this separate branch of government, and I know that it's a partisan thing, but that was just super so, disappointing from somebody who so far has actually seemed like he was being serious about this. So I hope it was just a momentary lapse. But Ruth, do you see anything in what's happened so far that shifts the dynamic? Which yes. The di- dynamic, oh. which is that that until Republicans see something that looks like an impeachable offense or something that seems that is more valuable to get rid of Trump than to keep him. Uh, and, and until that happens there, they will just not see, they will not see any high crimes. They will not see any misdemeanors. They will not see emoluments clause. They won't know how to spell emoluments until that moment happens. And has anything happened that makes you think we're closer I, to that? Yes. Um, read the newspapers over the last two, three weeks. I mean, Every day there is a new disturbing, I'm going to say brick in the wall of um, the case against Trump. And we don't actually know what the case against Trump is going to amount to, how high and beautiful that wall is going to be. (laughs) (laughs) I I just um, didn't plan it. But um, Jared Kushner and Michael Flynn had this crazy back channel. Did Trump know about it? All of these details about the president's dealings with Comey, others' dealings with Comey, all of this stuff that outrageously, we can get back to this, that the NSA director and the um, director of national intelligence refused to talk about in terms of the president's pressure on them. It all adds up. And at a certain point, we're not, I totally grant we are not there yet. If additional evidence continues to develop, and there's every reason to think that it will, because so far, and I am not a conspiracy theorist type, but every time they've told us something, it has turned out not to be true, and every conversation that we were told was innocuous was what's the opposite of innocuous? Has been super (laughs) innocuous. Noxious. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So I would say it's like, it's way too early to say nothing will ever change, and I, I, I can, I'll stop talking in a second, but I want to say really one sentence. I agree with Emily that you don't have to make the elements, the precise elements of an obstruction case, but I also think with today's testimony, and don't look at it now because don't take out your cell phones, but on www.washingtonpost.com, if not now, very soon, there's going to be a really good piece up by someone who worked for the Watergate special prosecutor explaining why what we saw in the Comey testimony is a prima facie obstruction case against the president. Not prima facie doesn't mean absolute obstruction case, like that it'll be brought. Big question about whether you can indict a sitting president. Doesn't mean it could be one if it could be brought, but that's a pretty major leap. So Ruth, Ruth is making this case. It's coming. The snowball is, is gathering steam. I, I'm of the, this is really just, I'm in, incredibly confused. It's more, I've used this, I think maybe I mentioned this, it's like a landfill. They're just like another tire. There's another bag of garbage here. And it just gets bigger and bigger, but it's no, it's no more coherent. And therefore, I don't, I'm not sure I see that same uh, momentum towards something. We're, 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 split the difference and remember that we do the show every week and Ruth is just an <laughs> occasional guest. I think the the watching the ball is both really fascinating and I find myself spending way too much doing that and also like essentially confounding because if you go back to your wall metaphor, we have bricks, but they're not like building in some linear fashion. I keep thinking about mosaics that you can sort of have your glass blue bead over here and there's a piece of sky, but you can't quite see how the puzzle fits together yet. And so... Until then, I think it's really hard to tell. And then they're just the pure naked politics of this, which is that we see Trump's approval rating falling, but not to some, you know, absolute basement level that the Republicans really feel like they have no choice but to turn on them. And I do think it's important to remember that, you know, we are, what, 140 days into this presidency? Not, not even. Not even. And it is... But a, feels like 141. It feels like a lot of days, maybe even more. But it is like a rough thing to have a party turn on its own president. That's just like a lot to ask. And it probably should be a lot to ask. And so in that sense... It's not surprising that, you know, people like Paul Ryan still invoking, in, invoke this idea that we shouldn't be 
rushing to judgment. I I am going to say one more thing, though. I've been talking too long, which is what struck me in the last week is that it just feels like the wheels are coming off in all these different domains, right? And that we have this president who is not thinking through the consequences of his actions for our allies, for our rule abroad, right? Like... And that I find incredibly disconcerting. And I, it does make me wonder how long it can last, not that I really see an end to it. The wheels are coming off and there aren't any spare tires. Right? They're all on the landfill. <laughs> and maybe there even aren't, like, people to break. Like, well, that's poor what guy I... Chris Ray who's coming in to lead the FBI. It's like, good luck, buddy. Anyway. So, Ruth, one of the, the other things that's happening is, as a, as a citizen that I find... Um, demoralizing about this moment is that we have this huge attention to the scandals to Comey's testimony. And meanwhile, behind the scenes in the Senate, there is a, the, the healthcare bill is being drafted. They are going to attempt to jam it through without any public hearings, without, uh, any discussion of it, without any democratic votes. And just to, to kind of push through an enormous piece of very disruptive legislation. And it seems to me that, that the, case, the stronger case that Democrats have is really that there are a whole bunch of policies that the Trump administration is pursuing that are appalling policies and healthcare is going to be exhibit A. And it's more confusing, right? It's actually very clear what the right, it's very Right. Policy. It's very clear that, 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 that healthcare policy, when people hear about it, they're like, that sucks. That seems bad. <laughs> and, and so do you, do you worry that the, that the focus on the, the Comey and the, and the obstruction of justice and the Russia stuff is taking attention away from these truly dire policy changes. Yes. Uh, no, I, re- I really do. And I think Mitch McConnell is having a great week, right? While, this, while all this is going on and we're paying attention to this object, bright, shiny object, which we absolutely need to pay attention to, he is preparing to remember t- the times when they got really upset, the Republicans, because it was passed without um, you know, regular order. Obamacare was passed without regular order. And Nancy there Pelosi said something. Hearings. Nancy Pelosi said something that suggested that we'd find out what was in the bill when we read it. Well, we are never going to find out what's in this bill until after it's voted on. It's, the fact that we're talking about re-restructuring the healthcare system, and there haven't been hearings. There is no bill to look at. There has been no CBO score before people have voted on it. There will be, I presume, no CBO score on this one. Is a total outrage. I think the solution is that basically, it's easy for me to say as an opinion writer, but the news reporters are just going to have to work around the clock. I mean, we have, we're going to have to learn in the Trump administration how to um, report on walking and how to report on chewing gum at the same time. Because <laughs> if we don't do... I mean, we've had this conversation in my office, and I'm like, no, we're not going to just pick out the most outrageous things to focus on. We're going to focus on every outrageous thing, not more than it should be, but because otherwise, we're, otherwise that lets people who want to do bad things win. It's, it is overwhelming, right? It's like being in a blizzard and there are a lot of things that are just going by us. I never discount um, Mitch McConnell's canniness and legislative abilities. And it's going to be hard to be the person who stops this from passing. I, I feel like we can't discount that, that that's where our momentum kicks in, that, you know, to be Lisa Murkowski, the one person who stood in the way and saved Obamacare, that's tough. Let's wrap this topic up with a couple of uh, more Comey questions. One is, I find Comey, I do find him a little bit prissy. And one of the things I find him prissy about is that he complained in the testimony that, that he only spoke to President Obama twice privately in however many years he was FBI director for Obama. How many is that? Two and a half. Yeah. And he, in three months as Trump's FBI director, he spoke to Trump one-on-one nine times, including three times in person that Trump, of course, is always trying to get him alone to talk to him. What's the, what, why should I care that the FBI director is having alone time? It's nice to have alone time with people, is having alone time with President Trump. In the alone in the green room with the table set for two, um, you should care because. Two Navy stewards who just um, came in and out. I like that detail. 
I th- I don't think we heard what they ate though. No, that's that, true. Yeah, and how many scoops of ice cream, right? <laughs> we but, know the answer to that. Do you guys <laughs> hear this amazing detail, which is that when Trump is served a group dinner, yeah. he gets two scoops of ice yeah. cream. Other people get maybe, one. Maybe he made Comey eat the meatloaf too. Right. Mm. Yeah. Seriously, Look, I'll order I, for you. I I think under normal circumstances, which is to say, a president whose campaign is not being investigated for possible collusion with the Russians, um, you might wonder about but not cringe too much at an alone time with the um, FBI director. I think under these circumstances when they have this dinner and he says, so do you want to still, do you want to keep your job? And Comey's thinking, you already told me I could keep my job. What's going on here? That's what you should be concerned about when you're sitting in the Oval Office and you make not only the Attorney General leave, but, you know, even Jared has to go. So you can... (laughs) So you can raise the question of, hey, could you go easy on my good buddy, Michael Flynn, because you know how much I care about him, and we go way back to like nine months ago. I mean, I think you have He's to be really... He's a good really, guy, take my word for it. You my really, word is yeah. my, yeah. my gold He's standard. He's a good guy. You have to be really seriously worried about what's going on here. And I think what we've failed to say is that this Comey testimony and all of the other things, it's being spun by... Trump's allies as, oh, this is just New York talk. New York talk is like the new locker room talk. This is like, might be New York talk if you're in like one of the five families. Uh, (laughs) But but this is not normal when a normal president behaving properly stays as far away from possible telling the the FBI director how he should handle any criminal investigation, no less a criminal investigation that could affect his own political interests directly. That's the problem. So what do we do, though? What do we do about this idea of not normal? Not normal, while I find it profoundly disturbing, is different from not legal. He is doing this presidency thing differently. And if you worry about independent investigations and the way in which, you know, yes, the FBI is part of the Justice Department and that's within the executive branch, but at least since Watergate, if not before, we've understood that these kinds of investigations need to be walled off from the White House, then it all seems like very unsettling. But if you're asking what does Trump as a president have the right to do, he can fire these people. He can end these investigations. He can kind of do whatever he wants. And have we run into the sort of limits of our own um, checks and balances here? Uh, I'm not prepared to concede that. I'm really not. Not normal is tweeting like a maniac at ridiculous hours, but that is not constitutionally repugnant, okay? This not normal is demanding loyalty explicitly from somebody whose job is not to be loyal to you. That's why we gave them 10-year terms, okay? they You don't get to come in and sort of say, I'm thinking about whether or not to keep you. You keep FBI directors. So I think when the not normal behavior bleeds over into things that have constant, that impinge on constitutional values, then you're in a, that, then you're in the, the scary world that we're in now, which is a world in which I could imagine arguing even if we couldn't prove every element of the obstruction crime, we could argue very legitimately for an impeachment. And I, I've never said this before. I've never really thought this before. I haven't, I don't think we're there yet, but I think we are edging closer and closer. All right. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins, and even better with unlimited storage and an easy to use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. 
and they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So our guest needs no introduction to this room, but this room is in Colorado where he's the governor. So just for those of you listening at home... We're really his guest. John Hickenlooper is our our host and our guest, the two-term governor of Colorado, former mayor of Denver, successful entrepreneur. Thanks for letting us come to your state. Oh, thanks for coming here. We feel blessed. Are we happy to have them here? So, Governor, on the last uh, several times I've introduced, I've mentioned that we're going to have you on the show. I've totally botched your name. Which is not that hard It's to very say. hard to say, <laughs> but I've added syllables, so I'm not even going to say your last name ever again. <laughs> we're also not going to ask you about pot. We... <laughs> Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Um, so I'll, we're all, we all have questions for you. I'm going to start. So I'm from Washington. And in Washington, this Trump business is exhausting. It's depressing. It is like, like a communicable disease of some sort. <laughs> what advice do you have for your, for Coloradans and for our listeners generally about how to preserve equanimity at a time when politics seems so disruptive and toxic uh right stupefying um i guess I thought you weren't gonna ask about pot <laughs> <laughs> that's good i so, like that for my kids who are listening i did not say that <laughs> so uh i think it, and it is a little bit i uh, when i was a, a teenager i went uh, and got talked into going on a sailboat for a, a, a long, long day where we couldn't just get off. And it was just stormy enough. So within an hour, I was green to the gills and, and it just, it was kind of dark and I was, I was downshift. They didn't want me up on the deck because it was too bouncy. And, and it was just, it seemed endless and oh, you God. couldn't tell which way you were lurching for it back and forth. And, and you always felt a little bit nauseous. I'm, I'm not saying anything. I'm just kind of describing <laughs> the feeling. Uh, but I think the I think the the antidote really is to stay very focused on. You know, it's funny. My mom was widowed a couple of times, and she would she was widowed twice by the time she was forty. And so she raised four kids by herself. And one of her big things was that we all had a responsibility to cre- create our own happiness, our own joy. And part of that was in building relationships with other people that would do somebody some good. And that I think keeping our focus on trying to move the ball down the field, push the boulder up the hill. That this is a time where it really matters. That if you you know random acts of kindness are going to make a big difference uh, in these years to come, I think. And I think there's a lot to be done that we can get done right now. So block it out. Get over your addiction. So, Governor, talking about getting things done, what are Democrats going to do to get themselves back in the game? When Barack Obama was elected president, you had both houses of Congress. You've lost a slew of governorships. You've lost those two houses of Congress. You've lost something like 900 state legislative seats. What the heck happened, and what are you guys going to do about it? It's all on you. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, I'm from the I'm from the the that big tent school, and I think that we're never. I mean, Democrats are always going to be civil rights, social justice, p- protecting the planet is going to be core of what we do. But we need to get back to doing things that move improve the opportunity for all Americans. And, and I think a lot of it's got to be about jobs and trying to figure out, and why did, when did Democrats ever protect, you know, red tape and bureaucracy, right? We should be for making government smaller but more effective and get rid of the red tape so more people can start small businesses and hire more people. I mean, that's not, isn't that part of the Democratic Party? Well, it is when you put it that way, because, like, whoever stands up for red tape. But if you think of... But they do sometimes. Well, they stand up for things like, you know, making sure that environmental checks are done so that you don't accidentally, you know, zap a bunch of endangered species. Right? But isn't that a form of red tape? I mean, when you say that, it sounds as if, like, all regulations are expendable, and I can't imagine that's quite... I'm so glad you put that out there, because that's the opposite of what I meant, right? And that, I think a lot of people hear it that way. Most 
unaffiliated voters, most people in the middle don't hear it that way. Red tape is when you have excessive regulation. So we have a wonderful guy named Joe Neguse. He's 32 years old. His, he came here, his family's Eritreans. Uh, he's the youngest cabinet member in the history of Colorado. You should seek him out when you get a chance. Uh, and he's our head of regulatory affairs. So he just finished six weeks ago. We've now gone through every 19,000 regulations in the state of Colorado and looked at them to make sure they're really doing what they're intended and get rid of the red tape. And I asked him a month ago, he said he was all done. And, and I said, what are you going to do now? He said, we're going to go through them again. Democrats should be the party about efficiency and excellence. And we, should, we believe in government. Let's make it work. So I totally agree with your should be. And I agree with your big tent. But I don't know if you've heard this, but... There's a lot of energy in the Democratic Party that is way on the left and does not want to hear about your damn tent. Um, <laughs> it want, it, and, it, and it actually wants to hear more about women's rights and more about uh, other things, and so, including some of the people here. And, you know, we had the other day um, a debate about whether it was acceptable to be a Democrat if you didn't support abortion rights. So over the deal? mayor of right, the mayor of Omaha, right? Not exactly um, right, uh, and the new chair of the DNC. So how do you deal with the reality of what you say needs to be done to get things done, and the energy of where the party seems to be, at least the party's base seems to be right now? And, and that is a, a genuine and serious conflict, and I don't have an easy answer, but. I am old enough to have marched on Washington against the Vietnam War in, in the in the late 60s. I was at the first Earth Day in Philadelphia. I remember helping on our local campuses, but you know we shut down a large number of the university campuses in this country in 1970 to protest the war, to organize, to get to speak our minds. But there was a lot of conflict within the party, and what people forget was that you know that we we did all this incredible activity. 1972, Richard Nixon got 60% of the vote. It's because we were fighting against each other to more than we were trying to say, all right, I don't agree with you completely, but we do share these core values about civil rights and social justice and protecting the planet. Let's work on making sure we get our allies into office, and then we'll try and persuade them to come stronger in those things where we disagree. So are you going to, they would take away our journalist badges if we didn't ask this. Are you going to try to do this and thinking about running for president in 2020? <laughs> you know, we are. I know, I know, I know you've never been asked this before. You're in a small select company yeah. of Democratic purple state governors. Well, and 25 other candidates. Um, <laughs> so and you just got through giving a litany of reasons why I would not be acceptable <laughs> for, for many of the people that are most active in a primary. I, I answer it every time like this. We're doing uh, some stuff here in Colorado. I mean, we have the lowest unemployment, not Is just in the like, country. Our yes, own, no question. Our, our, <laughs> hold on. Uh -uh. Our unemployment right now is 2.3%, right? That's the only four states in history have ever been that low. Um. But it, you're using that as a lever. We're working on an apprenticeship program where we're going to give every single kid, no matter where they are, the chance to do anything they want for their last couple of years of high school. They can go work in a bank or an insurance company. They can be an electrician. Kids love this. The businesses love this. I mean, this is something that it's kind of modeled on the Swiss and the German and the Swedish systems, but, but uniquely we had to tailor it for the United States. How do we adjust our healthcare system? Because our healthcare system is eating up more and more of the, of the money that we need for higher education and we need for other purposes. So we, we've always been the thinnest state. I think we've got a good chance of becoming the healthiest state. Uh, part of that. Who do you have to pass? Utah. Uh, <laughs> no, no, there are a bunch. Uh, North Dakota, Utah. There's there are a number they of states out count. there. They don't have enough people to it's count. Cold. North Dakota. <laughs> you just DQ'd North Dakota. Forget them. <laughs> Alaska, I would well, never no, say that. I love North Dakota. I've been there. Um, I That's think like a presidential candidate. I've been to all 50 states. <laughs> we, roll, we rolled out. Um, so we have, and a big part of what we've we pushed is the fact that, that we want to have an outdoor recreation industry and an outdoor attitude towards life. So when people come and start their business in Colorado, it's balanced. So they work, but they also exercise. There's family. They try, we try to have a balanced life here. It's a big deal. The moment I start forming a pack, the moment I say I'm interested, not only am I distracted, but my cabinet, everyone who's working for me is not going to work on these. We've got three or four things that I think are, are going to be national models of what states can do. So 
we're going to try and stay as focused. I have on my little, you know, my little calculator, my, my handheld shows that the, on my schedule that I have right now 400, I think it's 481 days left in the, in, in this administration. We're going to push on every single one of those days. So I have a, um, I have, a, I have a kind of a strange question, um, but it's one I've tested on other people here, and they all want to know. So you wrote in your memoir that you have a mild form of face blindness. Uh, yeah. And which, uh, which I guess in a serious form is called prosopagnosia. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it, which means it's hard. You don't, you don't know who I am right now, maybe. But you're or a politician. You're a politician. I am... I'm, How do what you are do your coping it? strategies? We're totally fascinated How do you, by this. Do you remember voice? Do you remember clothing do you remember what how what do you do so it's all different things you learn to overcompensate on everything and and you think it's worse bad as being a politician trying try running a big high volume restaurant my old brew pub we'd have a thousand dinners on a friday night at the wine cup right and and everyone they see you every three weeks they assume you remember them i mean i i do i use clothes haircuts if i'm watching a movie and they're you know two you know handsome blonde actors or two attractive brunette women or whatever I can't tell them apart the whole movie. If their hair looks right, roughly the same, you uh, should not watch The Bachelorette. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have, honestly, we could spend two hours. I'd see you at Starbucks tomorrow morning. I wouldn't recognize you. It's just, wow. it's what it is. And it's, I don't know if you read the Oliver Sacks stuff, but it's a real medical condition. I swear to heaven, it is a medical yeah. condition. <laughs> and it's, it's, you just, the only way you can deal with it is to apologize. And when people, usually, one of the ways of overcompensating is you're, Super friendly. Hey, how are you doing? Because then they think, if, if you know them, they think you recognize them. But if you don't know them, you're not too friendly. You're not awkward. Right? So you're missing names, but you make up for it with enthusiasm. Well, I, I, well it, 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 you, you get in the mindset that every person you meet is a friend. That's not a bad place to start or a conversation, right? <laughs> One last question, unless you guys have others. One, is that when we were talking to, to some GapFest fans before the show, they said... You know, one of the things that's really galling to us is the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. And that's something that we frustrates the acronym, them. Tamer. And we, we saw in Kansas just in the last couple of days in Kansas, they, these huge tax cuts that Governor Brownback had pushed through the Republican legislature was just like, we're going to get rid of Same them. We need, we need tax revenue. As a governor, how do you deal with the fact that the revenue may not be what you want it to be and you, you're constrained? And are there things that you're, you're looking to do to change that? So we've tried on a, on a number of levels. One thing that works well, it's not, it's not a good solution, is to get your tax increases on local basis and on a local basis. Statewide initiatives, it's, it's amazing and alarming how many people are suspicious of any intent, uh, no matter how well you document the need and, and how efficient you'll be in solving the problem. Statewide initiatives are very, very difficult. Local initiatives almost across the state you can get done. You have to be transparent. You have to be accountable. You have to show exactly how the money is going to be spent. Mill levy increases for schools, widespread. Now, that doesn't help those lower income communities, often out on the eastern plains, the rural parts of the state. They're getting the short end of the stick. And that's who Tabor really punishes. And, and what's ironic is some of the strongest supporters for Tabor are those same rural Coloradans that feel that somehow it's protecting them from people in the cities or people in the capital that are, are, are out to take something from them. That is a issue that has national ramifications right now. Thinking in terms of that, having an assumption that people should vote in terms of their economic self-interest is not working out particularly well for Democrats. So when you see that kind of phenomenon, you know, I'm sure you're, making all the rational arguments for why people in rural Colorado should see it differently, where in fact they're benefiting more. And yet it's not always easy to kind of bridge those divides. Do you think of them as being more sort of cultural? And what do you do about that? You know, it's funny. One of the things I learned in the restaurant business and, and really is true in politics, when you want to try and persuade something, someone of something they don't believe in now, the best way to persuade them is not to tell them what you think or what, why what they think is wrong. The best way to persuade anyone of anything is to listen to them and, and just keep repeating what they said and trying to put it in different terms and reframing it and talking to it. And we actually, after three years of trying, we passed something this year, uh, called the hospital provider fee, right? Apparently people like that. Well, it's, it, it's, a, it, 
it allows us to move the cap that, of Tabor that keeps the state from spending. It's an artificial cap that even as the economy grows, we're not allowed to spend all this money. Mm. This will increase it by about $800 million, which is a huge level. And it's, it's hard, long work. When you're in a restaurant, someone has had a bad experience. They're really, really pissed off. Can, can I say that on yes, your podcast? Sure. It's a podcast. You yeah, would not podcast. believe podcast. what you can okay. say on this podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but when someone's really upset, um, the, the, if you repeat their exact words to them again and again, it is amazing how it, it, it brings people back into their normal frame of mind, and they're much more willing to you know, examine things from a different perspective. And I think, in, in all honesty, one of the big problems with attack ads and this vitriol that we live in all the time, and especially in the campaigns, is people feel so bitter after an election that they won't take the time to listen. They're, they're, the person they were supporting has been so attacked and unfairly maligned that they figure, you know, I'm not even going to pay attention to these guys. And, you know, that's, that, that cuts both ways. And we're working on, you know, Colorado, I would argue, the most collaborative state in America. Governor Hickenlooper, thank you you for joining us. Come back anytime. That was a pleasure. Thank you. That could be hard to top. What's the Gab Fest is the most what show? Could we be like the most collaborative? I don't think we're the healthiest. We're not, okay, if we're not, might not be the thinnest, might not be the healthiest. We could just be like. Bickeriest. Bickeriest, yeah. Yeah, bickeriest. That's good. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Timothy Carpenter is the convicted criminal mastermind, or maybe not so much a mastermind, as we'll discover in a minute. That's a problem. Behind a string of armed robberies in the Midwest. In the course of investigating Mr. Carpenter's crimes, or alleged crimes. No, they're his crimes. He was convicted. Yeah. The police sought to figure out if his cell phone was near the robberies. So without getting a warrant, um, but using some mechanism that Emily will describe in a second, Uh they asked phone companies to provide records about the location of his phone and some other phones. And these, when they, the cell, the company, the uh, phone companies provided these records and they indicated that indeed Carpenter's phone was pinging towers nearby the site of the robberies at the time the robberies were taking place. Carpenter said, whoa, you can't get that information without a search warrant. And the Sixth Circuit of the United States said, yes, you can get that information without a search warrant. And now the Supreme Court is going to take this case and decide whether your cell phone and the location it is giving out to the world all the time is something that police can get easy access to or whether they need to go through a court process, a more formal legal process to get access. Called getting a warrant, a search warrant. Called getting a search warrant. So, (laughs) Emily, should they be required to get a search warrant for this information? I, so I'm on the fence, but I mean, so my general reaction to questions like this is like, it's not that hard to get a warrant. What is the big deal? It's really a pretty routinized process. It's not most like of the they're time. going to the FISA court. Exactly. <laughs> it's and that's n- not that all that hard. And that's not all that hard either. It's not a big rigmarole. So I'm, I, I think, I think I lean on the side of saying, yes. There is something counterintuitive about the idea that you need a warrant for cell phone location data, which Verizon or MCI or whoever your provider is already has. And that isn't about the content of the calls you're making or the texts you're sending. It's merely about the signals that your cell phone is sending off. Those are business records. And so the idea that you have a protected right to them, that it's an unreasonable search and seizure without a warrant, that can seem like a stretch. But then... Think about the fact that your cell phone is a computer you're carrying around in your pocket. It is essentially enabling the government to do 24-7 dragnet surveillance of you. And the way the government's request for information in Carpenter's case worked was that they asked for five months of cell phone location data. They wanted to know where he was at every moment for a very long stretch of time. 
is a lot of power to give the government to be able to get that kind of information without a warrant, without probable cause, because the basis they obtained the warrant on, this federal law, which maybe Ruth remembers the name of, which neither Ruth nor I had ever heard of, um, is much mushier. It basically says if, you know, it seems like it's related to the investigation and you have reasonable grounds, you should be able to get this information. And that seems like a low standard for information that creates such a complete profile of where someone has been. Um, so I basically agree with Emily, though we're trying to find ways to disagree, and I'm sure we will we'll by the end of this segment. So I love this case for a lot of reasons. One is, and I can't believe you left this out of the facts. Do you know what he, what insta- what entities he was stealing from? He was stealing from cell phone stores. Cell phone stores. Smartphones. He was going, he was to, trying he to was going to smartphones. Radio Shacks and T-Mobiles. So it's a kind, it's like the perfect, you know, irony. And uh, you of all people should have put that he fact He left in. it there for you. Thank you. Through. That was so giving. So, so typically, <laughs> so characteristically giving of you. Um, the, <laughs> See, two can play this game, plots. Um, I also love this case because it's really um, a story about the Constitution and how the Constitution has to um, be interpreted in light of changed circumstances. And even the most original originalists understand that this is a serious, however you come out on it, it's not a frivolous Fourth Amendment question. Uh, cell phone providers are getting so many of these that they now have like an online mechanism for police departments to submit their requests because it's a great way to find criminals. And I think like 19,000 requests to Verizon alone in the beginning of 2016 or something. And anybody who listened to Serial, I hear that's another podcast, um, (laughs) knows that um, cell phone tower records can be kind of useful in figuring out whether you've committed a crime or not. So we should have a mechanism where poli- that allows police to do their jobs and as with the other situations in which we have warrants puts a neutral and detached magistrate there to say yes you've shown enough reason to do this because to me the cell phone and anybody who has younger kids or teenage kids or any actually anybody now in America understands that to have the cell phone and to have the police able with very little evidence to track your location on a cell phone device, they might as well just implant one like right on your body because it's the same thing. You know, 90 umpty um percent of people have cell phones. Most of them keep it with them all the time. My favorite um, statistic on this is that 12% use their cell phones in the shower. I don't, that one I don't totally understand, but whatever. You can uh, put I, it in a bag and listen to podcasts. Or yeah, I, I I have listened to podcasts putting it outside the shower. But then you use your you're uh, like oh I can't believe this twelve percent use it in the shower and then you just said <laughs> you listen to your cell phone in the shower. Okay, he is allowed to attack me now, so that's fair enough. Um, so I think when the framers talked about unreasonable searches and seizures. Uh, Having the police capable of tracking you 24-7, which turns out to be, I didn't realize this, Emily, an open question in constitutional law, whether they could just, if they wanted to devote the resources that technology allows them to do without any expending any real resources, if they just wanted, if Attorney General Sessions wanted to assign you your personal FBI agent to track you around it's a kind of open question about whether that's permitted without a warrant. Right. And I think weird. we should, seems like I think we be. should think of this in the same way. I don't think it's the same way. It's not a cell phone tower record is a crude indicator of where you have been. It's, it a, it's actually increasingly accurate yeah, it's indicator of where you've been. It is a crude indicator of where you have been. Read the and cert it, petitions, buddy. And it, and it, and it is, you have the choice. You can say like, well, you know, people need their phone. They have to carry it. You have the choice to turn your phone off. If you are committing crimes, you have the choice to turn your phone off. <laughs> if, that's, if that's the thing you want to do. But is we that, we're not doing we wanna... this to protect the people who are committing crimes. Right. We're doing right. this to protect the rest of us, okay? I know, I and, know, but... You it's... know, you might have the choice to turn your phone off, but I don't because I got a lot of people who need to reach me. And I don't think that it's, uh, you know, fair. <laughs> More friends. <laughs> Or maybe occasionally uh, people call David. It happens, and, and I don't. Text I, once I, in a while, John texted him earlier. 
John texted me during the show. So there, there. did he text you? <laughs> I, I left. I don't know. I left my phone in the shower. <laughs> um, I don't think that a piece of technology that is so for better or worse, essential to our being in our daily lives should kind of come at a, cons- a price of constitutional invasion of our privacy. And it's the same reason, by the way, that the court said, yes, you need a warrant to search the cell phone. I, it is like your I f- do, actual diary. I absolutely yes. think you, the court needs a warrant to search your cell phone. That makes perfect sense to me. Your cell phone has all kinds of extremely, well, have have extremely private records. No, but your, your cell phone... Keeps so extremely the content private. and the, the location content, data. The location seems- data is you are your cell phone because you want to make phone calls. You you happen to be telling AT and T all the time. I'm here. Well, I'm here. I might not want I'm to here. tell you where I am all the time. I might have private places then, to go. Right, I might want to go right. to my shrink. Yeah. I might. Yeah. You know, and I don't necessarily want you to know that. Okay, so get out of my life. Yeah, no, I understand. I understand that you don't necessarily want me to know that. But for example, you are constantly in your life are leaving a trail. You you drive are, past speed. Leaving you're leaving a trail. trail, and some trails are really worth you know being very concerned about and ma- making sure that they can't stop you. And I do think the the that like for example, they shouldn't be able to access your exact GPS data on your phone. You that seems to me why. Because so only what you're already only telling what the you're company. telling them should they be able to access. And that seems like it's slicing it awfully thin. One, of, we just need to have a whole bunch of these cases where we decide, okay, it's okay for them to to do this, but not this. And we, I think the Supreme Court has said, okay, it's not okay for them to search your phone without a warrant. They've made a big arrested. space. Yes. And now this is a slightly different case. This is not the searching the phone. This is searching something which the phone has given to the world. Right, and so it's not exactly the same thing, and e- these things are slightly different, like and we should and we should techno- litigate each of them. Well, and also, what they do. Sorry, one one final point. What each of these cases do is that they, insofar as they become to public attention, it makes it starts a debate about these issues, and and then you know people realize, oh, there, here are tools I can use to mask myself. Here are things that I can do to prevent it, and it, it just making public awareness these, which these cases do, I think, is a really valuable service. I'm all for public awareness, but the masking, the, the idea of turning your phone off, I don't think that is going to ever protect most people who are innocently walking around with their phones. It's more likely to be something that will affect the habits of people whose phone data we might, the government might have good reason to be interested in. So I wonder how this cuts. The, the biggest Supreme Court precedent in this area is this case from the 70s called Smith versus Maryland that was about what's called pen register data. So again, information that the phone companies have about you and your dialing habits that the government wanted. And the court said at that point, these are business records. Essentially, you've already turned them over. You don't have any privacy interests in them. But it just seems to me that the more invasive technology gets, the clearer it is that turning over personal data and information for one purpose doesn't necessarily mean that you've turned it over for investigative purposes and that you're your cell phone company may not be your best friend, but they're also not investigating you in the way that the government is. Does that move you at all? And also, why not just require a warrant? We're not saying that the government can't get this information, just that there should have to be some bar they pass that, as Ruth was saying, is like a neutral decision maker. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, I mean, I just listened to Governor Hickenlooper talk about efficiency in government. <laughs> And it seems to me that you're, you just want to add more red tape to prevent <laughs> the police from doing their job. I don't know. The, that might be the good kind of red tape. That yeah, we those magistrates. Because that be... red tape is about your rights. Exactly. Ah. What? <laughs> no, seriously. So what? What is it? I I know I, I, this is not a this is not like a stupidly naive question. It's a genuinely curious question because I I know there's a good answer to it. What is it that? So, so the police have reason to believe that I, David Plotz, am involved in something nefarious, and so they seek these records, and they get these records from the phone company, and then it turns out I'm not involved in something nefarious. What exactly, where is the harm to me that ha- has happened? They got to snoop around and find out that you're, um, go- it's not you, but imaginary David Plotz is going to the therapist, and, this and imaginary. then they use that information against you in some way, or it just is an intangible but real harm to you that people know these private facts about you. You don't find that. I know you're so unmoved by these arguments because you live such an innocent life. I don't life. know. I mean, I just feel like that, they're, that 
you know, there's so much information that we are constantly leaving in the world now. And to get really worked up over this particular bit of information seems, I don't know, just seems, it seems, uh, your location well, what, all the time. What, well, how did you feel about it's not my location all the time. It's like, I'm a suspect tees. in something. I don't care if people know that I get bubble tea all every day. It honestly, <laughs> it doesn't matter to me. It shouldn't be about you. You shouldn't be someone who is having to lead an exemplary, if bland, life to feel <laughs> to feel safe and secure in this world of you know invasive technology we live in. You should be able to go off to see your therapist or do something you know far more nefarious than that, which is not illegal or which that would right. But, so, but, well, David, I think you actually raised a really good point about all the digital breadcrumbs that we leave. And, you know, there was a pair of shoes that was stalking me on the oh internet my God, I know. for weeks but until I, I finally you buy them and, and they're still stalking and, Yeah, and it's still stalking me. And then I was redoing the house and there were faucets. But <laughs> so, so why do I, so if, if things are stalking me from my internet behavior and, Gmail is using what I write in the Gmail to figure out what ads to send me that I would say that seems more intrusive in a lot of ways than ping, knowing my pinged cell phone tower location, which is much more accurate than you think. Um, so the question is like, what, which one should I be more upset about? Well, why do you for, have to choose? Why me, can't you find them both um, creepy? Well, A, you could find them both creepy. B, if you really cared about, um, uh, the internet service provider, you could figure out a way to, to be more, to have more privacy in that. But C, and that's a really big one for me, is this is the government. Um, and the government's covered by the Constitution. Emily, how do you think the Supreme Court is going to rule? They prevented warrantless searches of phones. Do you think they're going to continue this and, and overturn the Sixth do, Circuit's you know, decision? I do. We're seeing the court really think through the implications of a far more um, heavy-handed kind of surveillance than was possible before and put the brakes on. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go to Cocktail Chatter when uh, when you're having, I guess, a Buffalo Gold, bold, <laughs> Boulder beer. Ruth, what are you going to be chattering about? I'm going to be chattering about my kind of apparent inability, even in escapism, to do something that escapes from Trump. So I've noticed that like all my escapist stuff is actually just really figuring out ways to relive Trump. So my husband, we were like watching Netflix the other day and I was like, okay, let's watch Get Me Roger Stone. Like, I'm sorry. Like, how (laughs) sick is that? So I did one of those things that wives do where I bought a book for my husband, but it was really a book for me. Um, it's Churchill and Orwell, The Fight for Freedom by uh, my former colleague at the Washington Post, Tom Ricks. It was like another one of these versions of not escapism because it's really about, you know, two people who were fighting totalitarianism. Oh, gee, that sounds like a fun way not to think about the world. Um, but and but it's really interesting. Uh, but my cocktail chatter on this is going to be about how none of us, um, after reading this book or really anything about Churchill, can ever complain either about um, what our parents did to us or about how we've treated our children. Because this is um, good a letter that Winston Churchill's father wrote to him in August 1893 when he got into Sandhurst, the military. Academy, but this was a very um, disappointing thing to Lord Randolph, who wrote, with all the advantages you had, with all the abilities which you foolishly think you think yourself to possess, and which some of your relations claim for you, with all the efforts that have been made to make your life easy and agreeable, 
This is the grand result you come up with among the second-rate and third-rate class who are only good for commissions in a cavalry regiment? I shall not write you on this again on this matter, and you need not trouble to write any answer to this part of the letter. You will become a mere social wastrel, one of the hundreds of public school failures, and you will degenerate into a shabby, unhappy, and futile existence. So, lo- love dad. <laughs> Wasn't he 12 years old, awesome. too? But this was, he was sent off at some beastly young age, mm. but this is when he was like 20. Yeah, that nice, nice parenting. Go I feel good about myself. Yeah. Get your own values, and yeah. then I'm just going to social wastrel for you. That's excellent. Emily, what's your chatter? So, in the sort of category of things that I fear were missing in this moment that could do real damage, um, Vox got a copy this week of a draft. Trump rule that would essentially drive a huge truck through the contraception mandate in Obamacare. This is the the requirement that employer-based, that health insurance providers provide coverage for birth control. And I'm sure a lot of you remember there's already been a lot of litigation about this at the Supreme Court. Religious companies, now there is such a thing we know in the wake of Hobby Lobby, have already been provided an exemption. The continuing fighting that's going on is over schools and other kinds of nonprofit organizations that say that they're religious but are not actually churches, and they just had to, like, file some paperwork. So now, essentially, any company is going to be able to propose any sort of ethical or religious objection to providing birth control, and then they won't have to offer a health care plan that pays for it anymore. And you know what this really means, obviously, is that people, mostly women, are going to be taking on the private cost of birth control themselves. And if you think of relatively cheap forms of birth control, maybe that doesn't sound so bad. But what we really have increasing evidence for is that these long-acting contraceptions like the IUD... And certain kinds of implants are what really make a huge dent in the unplanned pregnancy rate. And Colorado, as some of you know, I'm sure, has been at the forefront of trying to pilot access to this kind of contraception. So when we're talking about why is it important to have insurance plans that pay for this, that is exactly what we're talking about. And so really, I think this is a kind of Trump administration war on birth control. And from the point of view of people who are oppose abortion and are trying to reduce abortion to also find a way to cut off access to the most effects of birth control, it just seems like there should be a problem there. And yet I fear that in some, on some day when we're all distracted, this rule is going to become, um, law like immediately. They don't even, I'm not, they're not even going to do notice of comment. No, they just, they said it's an emergency. So really it's an emergency. They've said emergency to get rid of emergency birth control. So they don't have to put it out for the regular comment. It can take effect immediately. And my favorite part was when they said that there really wasn't adequate evidence that birth control was effective in reducing pregnancy. <laughs> this from the administration, you know, uh, Donald Trump famously bragged that Melania took her birth, con- could be relied on to take her birth control pills every day. So, right. whatever. Yes. Okay. My chatter uh, is about coal miners. So we've heard a lot about coal miners recently. Uh, they, when we pulled out of the Paris Accord, Donald Trump and his administration cited, of course, the coal industry and protecting American coal jobs. And during the campaign, the the embattled and, and put upon coal miner was a huge subject of discussion. We've heard a lot about coal plants. The EPA administrator this week said on ABC that 50,000 coal jobs had been created in the last quarter, which turns out to be a lie. In fact, there were 400 coal jobs created in the last quarter. And it turns out that the entire coal industry, entire coal industry is 51,000 people working in it, and who, of whom, according to the best estimates, only about 15,000 are actually miners. So the Washington Post did a little bit of gathering of data about how many people are working in the coal industry versus other industries. And I went, I went deeper. So I went to the Bureau of Labor Statistics Occupational Outlook, and I have some interesting numbers here. So there are 15,000 coal miners and there's 69,000 people in the bowling industry. There are 15,000 coal miners. There are 138,000 people who work at used car dealerships. 15,000 coal miners, 127,000 drywall installers. 15,000 coal miners, 38,000 urban planners. 15,000 coal miners, 82,000 composers. 
15,000 coal miners, 100,000 event planners. 15,000 coal miners, 20,000 physicists and astronomers. 15,000 coal miners, 20,000 dancers. 15,000 coal miners, 31,000 archivists and museum workers. 15,000 coal miners, 22,000 economists. 15,000 coal miners, 21,000 zoologists. Nobody clapped for the economists. (laughs) Just saying. 15,000 coal miners, 50,000 artists. 15,000 coal miners, 55,000 skincare specialists. 15,000 coal miners, 279,000 personal trainers. 15,000 coal miners, 98,000 flight attendants. 15,000 coal miners, 175,000 college administrators. 15,000 coal miners, 350,000 librarians. 15,000 coal miners, 3 million warehouse clerks. 15,000 coal miners, and just if you think of 6th grade teachers, there are 250,000 public school 6th grade teachers in the United States. So, I find it amazing the amount of energy we've spent focusing on that, and I would like to talk more about drywall installers (laughs) instead. That's our show for today. The Political Gap Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our intern is Kevin Townsend. Kirsten Holtz produced this live show. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers presides over the Panoply Network. And thanks to the Robert and Judy Newman Center for the Performing Arts for hosting us. Please subscribe to the Gap Fest in Apple Podcasts and review and rate the show. It really helps us. For Emily Bazelon and for our incredible substitute host, Ruth Marcus, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer a hand clapper a high fiver I kind of like the high five but if you want to hone in on those winning moves check out Chumba Casino at ChumbaCasino.com choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes there are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses so don't wait start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com no purchase necessary BGW group void prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus